As a Christian parent, I can't imagine anything more gut-wrenching than to train a child to know the Lord, only for he or she to walk away from Christ later on in, in life. And many of you know exactly what that feels like because you've experienced that pain firsthand. And so what I thought we would do for the next several moments is hear from one of our very own pastors, Coy Walters, and his son, Trey, who at a time in his life walked away from Christ as well. Now, you have to understand that this is a story of pain and regret, yet it's also a story of hope and forgiveness and grace because, in essence, it illustrates the gospel. Check this out. The moment came for me when he called one day in his freshman year of college and uh, we sat down in our den and he says, I just wanted to tell you in person that I will no longer be going to church. That was, that was flooring to me. I was crushed. I felt like a failure immediately. My reaction was, what do you mean you're not going to church? And he said, well, when I've gone to church the last three Sundays with you, it's like I go into the church building and there is, I can't get through the ceiling to God. Somehow or another, I can't get to God at church where you are. And, and I felt uh, like all the time that I had invested in him had just gone down the drain. Well, you know, I have to be honest with you. I don't remember that conversation. What I do remember is that at that time, uh, I, had, I had grown very weary of my church experience. And I was sure, I was confident that what I was looking for uh, was not to be found uh, in that, in those circumstances. Though dad says that at that at that point, I had not reached the conclusion that there was no God. I can tell you that I did come to a point where I did decide that, and I did become an atheist. Within a couple of years, living in that way as if that were true, uh, I came to a point where the consequences of my lifestyle um, came down on me so hard that I had a moment when in my brokenness, uh, having no strength to move forward, I desired in that moment the possibility that I might be wrong and that there may actually be a God. Because if that was true, I needed that God to help me get out of where I was. And so, I asked in prayer, maybe for the first time in a couple of years, in a very sincere way, looking towards heaven, literally, I looked up and I asked him if he was real to prove it right then in a powerful way. And he did, immediately. That was the first moment um, where I was convinced beyond a shadow of doubt that God, in fact, in fact, in truth, is real. He slowly, over time, as I was ready, proved to me that the things that I was taught as a child were true. Yeah, the, I just want you to know as a, as a parent was just almost unbearable. And... Uh, 
and I don't know really how I got through it, but when Trey uh, started wanting to talk about faith matters, again, it was like, uh, you know, he, he's coming back. And, uh, but I knew I had to act differently and I knew I had to embrace him and just love him unconditionally and try not to impede his journey with God because it was his journey, not my journey. And so I had to, I had to learn patience, uh, but and to watch him grow to become the man that he is. He is a much better man than I am. He's a better father than I am, than I was. And that thrills me to no end. The journey has been excruciating as a parent. But I praise God that his word stands firm that the seed sown will is there to germinate when the soil is watered by God. Yeah. You know, sharing a story like that requires a lot of courage, and I just so appreciate the transparency and authenticity of Coy uh, and Trey Walters. And they will both tell you to this day that they are still working through their past, but like all of us in here, it's a journey, it's a process, it's not something that just occurs overnight. And truthfully, their story is not much different than a lot of ours in this room and in the chapel today. I bet most of us in here can recall back when we first tasted freedom in our life whenever we were younger. You may have felt it whenever you got your driver's license for the first time or you went on that first one-on-one -on -one date with a boyfriend or girlfriend at the time. Or you definitely experienced it whenever your parents dropped you off at college and you spent that first night all by yourself in the dorm room. If we're all honest with ourselves, that initial taste of liberty and independence is exhilarating and life-giving, right? Well, as our parents' rules became less and less, we started to wonder. We started to drift. We started questioning different things that we were taught to believe or how we were instructed to behave growing up. And maybe for you, you can point back to a specific chapter in your life where you really began to question this whole Jesus and church thing. If you were like me, you were drugged as a child. Each and every week, my parents drugged me to and from church. And looking back, that was a very good thing. But for you, maybe those seeds of doubt ultimately led to a rooted, deep belief in Christ. In other words, you look back and your time of wandering was redeemed. You may have gone away for a time, but then you came back. But what happens? What happens when a child doesn't return? I mean, how are you supposed to respond when an addiction takes over his life? And more than those questions, what may keep you awake at night is wondering, where did I go wrong as a parent? 
And this weekend, we continue in this series that we've been in called Pursuing the Heart of God. And it just so happens that if King David, a man after God's own heart, could sit down with every pain-stricken parent in here who has a defiant child, he would look you straight in the eye and he would say, me too, I've, I've been there before. And so right out of the gate, I think it's important that we just make a few clarifications up front. And the first thing that I want you to know is this, that you are not, you alone are not responsible for your child's rebellion. Now, you probably have moments of intense regret or guilt. Perhaps you look back at pivotal moments whenever your child was still living under your roof and you wonder what you could have done differently. And truthfully, there is no perfect parent out there. You aren't or you've never been that perfect parent. But you need to understand today that ultimately it was a conscious decision that your child made to walk away. Solomon imparts some wisdom to us in Proverbs 22 when he says this, that young people are prone to foolishness and fats. And isn't that just true? You see, a rebellious DNA is fused into every child regardless of who he or she may be. It's called sin and we're all guilty of it. Now, the great mystery of parenting is when one child grows up to know and love and serve Jesus, but then the other grows up to be an atheist. How does that happen? Well, I don't know. But what I do know is that ultimately it comes down to a conscious decision that your child makes. You see, one of the most freeing things that you can latch on to as a parent is realizing that you are not your child's savior. And the one who is, he cares a lot more for your son or daughter than you can even imagine. The second thing that I want you to know up front is this, that no child is ever beyond the point of no return. Now, when we say things like, you know, he, he just won't ever get it, or she's just too prideful to ever admit her mistakes, we are really limiting the power of God and putting contingencies upon the gospel. Now, coming to Jesus will always require our repentance. But you see, that's a response to a deep understanding of what Jesus has already done on our behalf. Titus chapter 3 says it like this, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. In other words, we've all been that prodigal child at some point in our life. Then he goes on to say, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his great mercy. You see, if your problems seem too big, then maybe your perception of what God can do is just too small. I think that as parents, we can become a little bit discouraged whenever we wrongly interpret this verse in Proverbs 22. Solomon says, train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, if you're a parent and you have a child who isn't walking with the Lord, you might read that and think, well, where did I go wrong as a parent? I mean, how did I not train him or her in the ways of God? Well, you see, if you read this verse through the lens of it being a promise or a guarantee, no wonder you beat yourself up a lot. You see, rather, this verse was meant to be interpreted as a principle. In other words, model the gospel well for your children, and even when they want nothing to do with it when they're older, it'll be something they'll be reminded of, and maybe eventually they'll return to it. Now, it doesn't always work out that way, does it? And that's why my favorite phrase in this verse is when Solomon says, when he is old. Do you know what that means? Don't stop being a parent. There's still time left. And your child is not beyond that point of no return. 
Most of us in here can probably remember back in 2004 when a massive massive tsunami struck the country of Indonesia, tragically killing 230,000 people. One family living in a district where the entire population was nearly wiped out lost their only children, a son and a daughter, ages four and seven. Well, after searching for a month, the mother and father just wrote them off as dead. Part of that 230,000 that were wiped out. Well, at the beginning of this month, nearly 10 years later, after that natural disaster, their daughter was found alive by an uncle 560 miles away from where they are living. She is 14 now and has been reunited with her biological family. Now, can you imagine how many nights her parents went to bed over the past 10 years grieving over her loss? I mean, how many times did they walk past her strangely silent room just longing to hear her voice again? You see, just when they thought that all hope had been lost and buried 10 years ago, their daughter is found alive and she is brought back home. I mean, can you imagine the party and celebration that was thrown in her honor? Now, if you and I were to sit down and we were to discuss some of the issues that maybe you've been walking through lately with your children, you might tell me about how your son wants nothing to do with you or... How your daughter keeps telling you that she can't wait until she turns 18 so she can get out of the house and live on her own. I mean, you might resurface some wounds from the past that keep your children from coming home during the holidays. Now, from your perspective, there's just no hope. I mean, the more time passes, the lesser the chance that they'll end up returning. But let me ask you, do you think that they are still within reach of their Heavenly Father? I mean, do you believe that though it may take 10, 15, even 20 years, that eventually your child may end up coming home? Well, uh, you're going to have to hang tight with me today because we're going to cover a lot of ground in a few minutes' time as we enter into David's pain as a parent. David would go from being on top of the world to being a great candidate for the Jerry Springer show, all right? And so where we're going to pick up today is in 2 Samuel chapter 13, and that's in the Old Testament, front third of your Bible, right in between the book of 1 Samuel and 1 Kings. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. We encourage you to take that with you. Maybe you have um, a Bible on your phone or iPad. We encourage you just to jump to that right now. Now in chapter 13, one of David's sons, Amnon, had fallen in love with his stepsister, Tamar, He couldn't control his desires, and so one day he came up with a really wicked scheme, and he raped her. Well, it wasn't too much longer until her full brother, Absalom, found out about it. And the second Absalom learned what his stepbrother had done, he immediately plotted revenge. The Bible then says two years later, he carried out this plot and had his stepbrother, Amnon, murdered. Now let me just ask you this, where do you think Absalom got the bright idea that murder would cover over sexual sin? You see, he knew that what he had done had brought a lot of grief to his dad. And so what he did is he ran away to his grandfather's house for about three years. I want you to look at the surprising insight of what we see in chapter 14, verse 1. Here's what it says. Joab realized how much the king longed to see Absalom. Now you see, Joab was King David's nephew and commander of the army. He had a front row seat to David's pain and anguish as a father. Now, three long years had passed since David had last seen Absalom. But at this point, David just wants him home. 
I mean, his greatest desire is to begin down that path of reconciliation. And some of you today in the chapel, you know exactly what that feels like. Well, over the course of different events, Absalom returns to Jerusalem. But the Bible says that he didn't see his father, David, immediately. In fact, he wouldn't see his face for another two years. And though King David loved Absalom, he just wasn't ready. I mean, forgiveness from deep grief caused by people that we're close to in this life, it rarely happens immediately, right? So um, what happens is in chapter 15, Absalom, he strategically then positions himself to hear complaints of the Israelites who were on their way to King David, his father, about different issues that they had going on. Maybe uh, uh, they had different political issues that they wanted to talk to him about. And so Absalom plays interference and he gains their attention. What's the result? Look at verse 6. Here's what we read. Chapter 15. Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment. And so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. Now there's no telling how many people Absalom captivated. He did this for four long years as he intentionally weaned the people away from his dad, King David, and towards himself. Eventually, Absalom gained the courage to approach the king for his blessing to go to a place called Hebron where he said he was going to pay a vow to the Lord. Now, we know from our perspective that Absalom was simply using the name of God to build his own empire and his own kingdom. How many people still do this kind of thing in the church today? And so upon receiving permission from his father, Absalom assembles over 200 men to join him in this quest. Now some of these guys were King David's closest advisors so that when Absalom attempted to overthrow the throne, his dad would be without his most valuable men to strategically respond. And so Absalom establishes his base here in Hebron and pretty soon his dad hears about the takeover that's about to happen. Look at verse 13. A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, all Israel, all Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. And so this child that David has raised has officially turned his back upon him. David used to change his diapers whenever he was younger. (laughs) He used to run him to the pediatrician whenever he was sick. He used to give him Tylenol and oral gel at 3 a.m. whenever he was teething. You see, David was the father that answered every why question that two-year-old Absalom would ask. And this is what David gets in return. Well, the king really had no choice but to vacate the city. And as David leaves Jerusalem, he runs into one of his predecessor's relatives, a guy by the name of Shammai. He pelted David and his men with stones because he blamed David for King Saul's destruction. Now, you may remember that David had nothing to do with Saul's destruction. In fact, uh, when he had the chance, he dismissed that opportunity. And so in this instance, David very easily could have had Shammai killed. In fact, one of his men came to him and said, I want to behead him right here on the spot. But it's as if David is so disillusioned to the fact that his own son is after his life, that he allows Shammai to live. It's like he can't even think straight at this particular point. And you see, when you have a child who is far off, it's all that you think about. 
Every time you go home or you step into that specific room, it reminds you of the good old days whenever he or she were still living under your roof. Lately, you just feel a little bit helpless because it's as if a son or a daughter has waged war, has brought an army against you at this, during this chapter of your life. Now, meantime, back in Jerusalem, Absalom has officially overtaken the palace. He's been advised to sleep with his dad's concubines as a blatant act of rebellion. Now, let me pause right there for just a moment. You might be thinking, how could David, a man after God's own heart, have women at his disposal to perform different sexual acts for him? Well, I don't entirely understand it either, but what I do know is that just because God allowed this to happen didn't mean that he necessarily approved of it. Now, God in his grace does the same thing for us today. Just because he allows us to do certain things, it doesn't mean that he approves of it. You see, in his patience, he longs for us to repent and eventually grow in his grace. And so Absalom has uh, set up tents on the palace roofs for everyone to see. And you see, this sent a message to the Israelite nation that someone was sleeping with the king's women, thus signifying that a succession had taken place. And so over the course of time, things get a little interesting for Absalom because David had had some inside men giving Absalom some really bad advice, though they had the facade and the image of being loyal to Absalom. In reality, they were really being loyal to David. And so eventually this battle breaks out between two armies, between a father and a son. Now before David sends out his men into war, I want you to pick up on what he says in chapter 18, verse 5. For my sake, David says, deal gently with young Absalom. And all the troops heard the king give this order to his commanders. Well, as the war went on, David's men proved to be a little bit more experienced than Absalom's. It was only a matter of time until Absalom met his ultimate destruction. I want you to take a look at how Absalom meets his death in verse 9 of chapter 18. Here's what we read. During the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on a really cool mule. <laughs> but as he rode off, he went beneath the thick branches of a great tree. His hair got caught in the tree. It's never going to happen to me, Okay. His mule kept going and left him dangling there in the air. And so in a matter of moments, David's men find Absalom and then they just spear him to death. And the scripture makes a really interesting observation. Check out verse 18. During his lifetime, Absalom had built a monument to himself in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to carry on my name. He named the monument after himself, and it is known as Absalom's monument to this very day. Now, for many years, scholars believe for this to be the actual location of Absalom's monument. There's some speculation about it, but uh, I've been to this location before. It's located just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Now, when we look at the structure that Absalom probably built in his honor, we really see what's at the root of every rebellious child. Pride. Absalom didn't want to be told what to do. He didn't care what he was advised. All he cared about was fulfilling his dreams and his desires in building his own empire and his own kingdom. And so parents of wayward children, understand that your child is walking away, is wandering for this time due to a desire to build their own monument in this life. 
You see, pride is at the root of just about every sin you and I commit. And so maybe you're wondering right now, well, that's, that's great, but, but where do I go from here? I mean, how do I interact with my son or daughter who has just rejected me, has rejected our faith? Well, the first challenge I want to throw your way is this. Constantly point them to Christ. Constantly point them to Christ. You see, when a sheep leaves the fold, this is really the greatest opportunity to proclaim and model the gospel. Now, God's word tells us that you and I are sinners and we're totally helpless. We've been born with this nature, but it's also by choice on our part. Now, the result of this, of this sin in our life, is that we have been disconnected from a relationship with the holy God of this universe. Now, there is nothing you and I can do to enter back into that relationship with God. We're totally helpless. We can't save ourselves. Therefore, there's not one person in this room or in the chapel today that hasn't been lost during at least one point in our life. And so our only hope is to trust in Lean our life against Jesus' finished work upon the cross. And you see, then once we've been made right in God's eyes, he then imputes Jesus' righteousness to us on our own behalf. Think about it like this. God treated his son, Jesus, like an enemy so that he could treat his enemies, that's us, like his son. What? That doesn't make sense, does it? It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange You see, when God looks at people who have committed their lives to him, he no longer sees you as a drug addict. I mean, that one night stand that you had in college no longer defines you as a person. Maybe you embezzled some funds from your prior employer, but it no longer defines you as a person. No, when God looks at each and every one of us in here who have trusted in Christ, he sees Jesus. You see, he has covered you with the righteous life that Jesus lived on your own behalf. Now, this isn't fair. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I know. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, talking about Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. You see, this is important for us to understand because when you realize that at one point you too have been a rebellious child, it enables you to approach a son or daughter with a little more grace, truth, and transparency. Now, where we're prone to get this wrong is when we expect our children to live like Christians when they may not even be one in the first place. Now, this doesn't mean that if your child is living with you, that they don't have rules or boundaries. If he or she is under your roof, you have full authority to call the shots. But realize that along with rules, you're called to also lovingly pursue them. And so if you're constantly criticizing an adult child, if you're always thinking negatively or talking negatively about them, if you can't remember the last time you told them that you loved him or her, or you exercised generosity towards them, then maybe... Maybe you really don't understand the gospel. You see, comprehending the fact that God pursued you and your sin enables you to pursue those in your life who are just a little bit more difficult to love. Now, you may feel unconditional love towards him or her, but when was the last time you really showed that? I think one of the greatest ways and most practical ways that we can point a child towards Christ is when we live in an authentic fashion Now, my experience has been is that children can put up with a lot of mistakes that we as parents make, 
But one thing that's tough for, for them to forgive is when they see mom and dad live a double life. I mean, nobody likes a fraud, right? I was very blessed to grow up in a home where my parents modeled this really well. They never were the perfect parents, but you know what? They never proclaimed to be. And some of my most vivid memories as a child is when one of them would take me by the hand, sit me down at the kitchen table, and they'd say, you know what, Patrick, I owe you an apology. I shouldn't have raised my voice at you earlier today, and I, I just need you to forgive me. Kids don't expect perfection. They just want transparency. And I learned early on that nobody wins when putting on a mask. Now let me just ask you a question. What would you do, how would you respond if I told you that whatever your child is caught up in, that they are ultimately longing for Christ? It's just maybe along the way they've been subjected by the evil one. Over 100 years ago, theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote this, every time a man knocks on the brothel door, he is really searching for God. And so how would your approach to parenting change if, if you started realizing that? How would you treat a neighbor or a coworker who is far away from the Lord? How would you treat them differently? Well, the next challenge that I want to lay before you is this, keep looking for ways to connect Keep looking for ways to connect. In other words, learn to speak your child's language. Now, um, our senior pastor, Ken Eidelman, does this pretty well with his children. And I'm going to <laughs> give you an example of what I mean. But before I do this, you have to know that what I'm about to show you is rather dangerous. He doesn't know that I'm doing this. He is away in Texas right now. So I thought, I'll do what I want. I learned that a week ago he got into a series of video text messages with his two daughters and son and he sent these videos through an app that distorts your face and your voice in a very humorous fashion. Now one of his kids graciously and secretly uh, sent this video to me and so throughout this video that I'm about to show you he explains to his children how his anniversary date with his wife Kayleen went earlier that day at the local Red Lobster. And so you may wonder, what does Pastor Ken do during his spare time? <laughs> Check this out. Hi. I took your mother to the Red Lobster today for lunch. She had crab legs. I had lobster I didn't even get to pay for it. There was one of the guys from our church in the booth next to us, and he picked up the check. <laughs> we need to pray for him. <laughs> Now, this is probably my last time to preach, so uh, I just want you to know it's been good knowing you all. <clears throat> now, you may ask yourself, let me just ask the obvious question, what would possess, I mean, what would cause somebody to download an app like that and then send that type of video to his children? Now, we're quite confident that alcohol wasn't involved in this. But I'll tell you what motivated it. Aside from just a good sense of humor, this is about a dad who is still serious about connecting with his younger children. You see, he understands the importance of not expecting his kids to speak his language, but he's willing to get on their level, no matter how foolish that looks, he's willing to get on their level and connect with them in a manner that they can understand, in a manner that they can get. 
And so for every parent or grandparent in here longing to make an eternal impact in their child's life or grandchild's life, it's going to require getting creative and learning to speak their language. Now maybe she loves coffee or tea. Why not text her later on this week and say, hey, how about I meet you at Starbucks? It'll be on me. Or if he's away at a rehab facility, why not send him a package of goodies reminding him of home? You see, here's the thing. When we connect with the child in a manner that they can understand, you are a direct imitation of the one who left the comforts of heaven and entered this dark and broken world to save us and rescue us from our sin. Jesus didn't come here expecting for us to know what he was talking about or to adapt to his language. No, he merged in with the culture where he found himself 2,000 years ago. In John's biography in the life of Christ, he first introduces Jesus by saying this in chapter 1. He says the word, talking about Jesus, he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So what's the result of this? John says, well, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. You see, the result is that people see Jesus when you speak to them in a way that they can understand. Now, this weekend only, we're providing a free book called Praying for Your Prodigal by Kyle Adelman out in the Connection Center in the lobby. And uh, we're, we're running low on them, so we do encourage you to pick them up. And uh, if there's none back there, we do encourage you to get on Amazon, and it's called Praying for Your Prodigal. It's just a great resource for you, uh, maybe to apply to your own life or maybe to give to a a neighbor or someone who is just dealing uh, with their difficult child. We also have support groups here on Monday night that deal with this specific topic. One of the best things that you can do as a parent is just to know that you aren't alone in this battle and in this struggle. Well, the last takeaway that I want to throw your way is this. Ask God to grab their attention. Ask God to grab their attention. In his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, Jim Simla, who's the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, tells a story of a very difficult time in his life many years ago. His daughter, Chrissy, at the age of 16, began to rebel against her family and against God. And soon after that, she left home and went the way of the world. Now, Jim's initial reaction was to try to force encounters and conversations with her, but only found these to cause a greater sense of separation. And so finally, he and his wife, Carol, came to a very scary place where he totally released control of his daughter's destiny. Jim writes this in his book. He says, at times, I would hear bad news about Chrissy, but I would intercede in prayer, sometimes even with thanksgiving to God for what I knew he was about to do in her life. Then, on a cold night, a Tuesday in February, During a prayer meeting, he was uh, speaking from Acts chapter 4 on the church boldly calling upon the name of the Lord. Well, as the group began praying, an usher came forward with a note to Jim, and it was from a young, spiritually sensitive woman in his church. She was in attendance that night, and she wrote this, Pastor Simbola, I feel impressed that we should stop the meeting right now and all pray for your daughter. Well, hesitantly, Pastor Simbola announced the request of this young woman, and so an associate minister then got up on the platform and he began to pray. Simbola uses the metaphor of a labor, wor- a labor room to picture what took place all over the room as there was this intensity, this desperation, and almost a holy groaning taking place. 
Now throughout the place, there were players of fervent determination lifted up to God as if to say, Satan, you will not have her. Take your hands off her. She is not, she is not yours. Symbola then said, it was like I was overwhelmed. I nearly fell over. The throne, the force of the vast throng of people calling on God, calling on God almost literally knocked me over. But nothing, he says, nothing compared to what happened nearly 32 hours later. On a Thursday morning, he was shaving when he and when his wife burst into the room, eyes wide. She said, go downstairs, Chrissy's here. Well, frantically, he wiped his shaving cream and proceeded down the stairs while his heart began pounding. He found his daughter Chrissy lying on the kitchen floor, just rocking in her hands back and forth, sobbing uncontrollably. She said, Daddy, Daddy, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against Mom. And I have sinned against God. Please, Forgive me. And then she said, Daddy, who is praying for me? I mean, who is praying for me? Well, Jim asked her exactly what she meant, and she responded, On Tuesday night, Daddy, who is praying for me? Well, what do you mean by that? Well, God woke me up, she said, and showed me that I was heading toward the abyss. There was no bottom to it. I was so frightened. I realized how hard and rebellious I'd been. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped me in his arms and held me tight. He kept me from sliding further as he said, I still love you, Chrissy. I still love you. Just come home. Just come home. Now, Chrissy's genuine return to Christ was evident in her attending Bible college, marrying a preacher, and her continued dedication uh, and service to the Lord. Jim states that he and his wife, Carol, learned that nothing is impossible, nothing is impossible with God. So is it possible for you? Is it possible that God is asking you to turn your child your grandchild over to the Lord and say, I'm doing what I can. But God, ultimately, it's you who can transform their heart. You see, the Holy Spirit has a way of positioning people in life to hear the voice of God, no matter how far off he or she may be. When talking about how transformation occurs, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, so neither the one who plants, talking about evangelism, so, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But only God who makes things grow. And so pray for growth. Ask friends, ask those in your small group to join you in going before the Lord to intercede on their behalf so that God will intervene in their life. You see, you can't break their drug habit, you can't heal their marriage. You can't control their fits of anger. You can't soften their heart. You can't wipe clean or redeem their past. But I know someone who can. He's done it for me. He'll do it for you and he'll do it for your child. His name is Jesus Christ and he specializes in making new creations every single day. He's the same one who can make the deaf hear and the blind see and the lame walk. And he can transform your child's heart. He can transform their life just as good as anything that he's done in the past. He specializes in transforming people's lives every single day. And so what we're going to do now, uh, in just a minute, the band is going to come out. And we're, we're going to take communion as a church. 
And the band is going to lead us in a song called Anchor that Chris introduced to us just a few minutes ago. And at first, I just want you to sit in your seat. And I want you to pray. And I want you to reflect. I want you maybe to read the words that will be up on the screens. I just want you to talk with God. And after you're done taking the bread and juice, which are tangible reminders of what Jesus endured for you on the cross And as the song proceeds, I just want you to feel free to stand up and worship and make this song your declaration. Now here's why I wanted to end with this song today. The Bible describes this life as a period of waiting that we are all in. We are waiting in anticipation for the final redemption that Christ will make and come when he comes here to wipe out all darkness and all sin on this earth. Now some of us, we long for that day more than others. And so in the meantime, according to Hebrews chapter 6, this salvation, in other words, this relationship with God that we have is like an anchor for our souls that is steady and trustworthy. Now it just so happens that the nautical metaphor of an anchor communicates something that is lasting, that is binding, and is constant in the midst of life storms. So maybe right now, your storm is a divorce. Maybe right now your storm is a health issue. It's a depression. Your health issue, or your storm is an addiction, or perhaps it's a wayward child. Whatever waves are crashing up against your boat right now, could it be that Christ is coming to you today and he is saying, I am your anchor, you can trust me. Maybe he's whispering in your ear right now, you know what, I know that life has been really hard, I know it's been difficult, but if you let me, I'll take care of you. I never promised that life would be easy, but I did promise to be with you through it and to take care of you. And so maybe that's where you're at and maybe that's what you need to declare today. Let's pray and then we're gonna take communion and worship as a church body this morning. Father God, I know that uh, there are a lot of us in here who are going through a lot of different storms in this life. And I'm sure that a message like this lands on some pretty wounded past. So God, would you teach us and would you show us that you really are our anchor, that God, you are greater, that you are stronger, that you are better, you are more capable than anything we can bring to the table. And Father, would you show us that you never promised to exempt us from pain and difficulty and disappointment, but what you did tell us is you'd take care of us through it. You'd be our anchor. So God, I I just thank you for that promise. And sometimes we doubt, sometimes we get frustrated. Sometimes we ask why, sometimes we just get angry. But God, teach us to trust you more deeply. For it's in Christ's name that we pray and gather. Amen.